All over the world, Reese Fernandez Ruiz has been honored as the co-founder of acclaimed eco-ethical lifestyle brand Rags to Riches, racking up accolades as a multi-awarded social entrepreneur. She is bright and effervescent, as well as chic and well-spoken, qualities that belie a childhood spent in poverty. But it's through the lens of her own personal experiences and in dealing with the artisan communities that she works with that Reese has come to understand what it really, truly means to empower women. My name is Leah Cruz. On this episode of What Glass Ceiling, we talk to Reese Fernandez Ruiz. Hi, Reese. Welcome to What Glass Ceiling. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So happy to be here. So, Reese, you've been recognized globally as a social entrepreneur, and you actually have a pretty amazing story that's been written about and featured many times in many different platforms. Tell us about your background. Tell us about your childhood and how you grew up. Wow. So I don't think we have like a lot of time in this podcast for me to like do a blow by blow of my childhood. But just to give you an overview, I grew up in different churches and my mom is a missionary worker. So I I really grew up seeing what poverty is firsthand, but I didn't really label it as that because for me, it was just my life. That's just what I called it. And so my friends were street kids and we would go around different churches and we'd we'd be part of a feeding program. Um, or different programs of the church. So there were times when I remember um, like doing our laundry in the church restroom. So just so many um, different memories of how it's like to really hustle and uh, be in the streets and be with everyone that who are experiencing poverty and hunger. So that was my childhood. Um, I remember it well. And I try to not forget it every time I make decisions today. Uh, but fortunately, I got opportunities because of family, because of strangers who gave scholarship programs to somebody who they didn't know. That was me. And so I got into different scholarship programs and got support from family as well and got to where I am now. But I always don't forget that it's not because I am amazing or because I'm smarter than a lot of people. Because honestly, um, the street kids that were my playmates when I was young, they were very smart. They're smarter than me. And I could just imagine if they were given the opportunities, what they could have done with the opportunities. Um, But I got here because, well, I got the opportunities. I got lucky. I won the lottery in some way, and that's why I'm here. So I'm very um, cognizant of that fact, and I try not to forget it. When you say that you grew up in different churches, does that mean that you actually lived in the churches? Yeah, yeah. So um, my mom is a missionary worker, but she's a freelance missionary worker, which is really just a nice way of saying she didn't belong to any congregation, and she's a volunteer. So we would go to different churches around the Quiapo area. So Quiapo Church, San Sebastian, there's Holy Face. And so that I could sleep, uh, my mom would do a vigil. So she would be in the um, chapel the whole night so to guard the chapel. But I'll be able to sleep there. So there were so, so many nights that we were doing that when I was young. Your family is your mom, you, and your brother. Yes. And were you ever aware maybe that what you were experiencing was not really what everyone else is experiencing. I mean, having a missionary mother, having to sleep in the churches. Was there ever a point in time where you thought that, that, hey, maybe there's something, there's another experience out there that I may be interested in? 
not immediately because um, my playmates were mostly from the streets also. Some of my playmates were from church. But we didn't really talk about deep stuff like family and stuff. We just thought we just talked about like interesting games that we had to play. Um, I wasn't very aware that it was very different, but I knew that it was hard because it was very inconvenient. So we would walk a lot and we would be under the rain a lot. And so I thought that, you know, it was inconvenient that somehow maybe it will be better to be inside those cars that I see. Or, um, you know, with some families. But it wasn't really, uh, I wasn't really pining for it. Because I think you don't really pine for something you don't know exists. So, yeah, for me, that was normal. Tell us about going to school. How was that experience? I mean, getting the scholarships and, you know, making the adjustments. Oh, it was tough. Um, I I was a very strange kid because... You know, I came from a different background. So getting to the schools that I got into with kids of different backgrounds was very jarring for me. Um, I also stopped schooling for two years when I was in grade school. So I stopped when I was in grade four and went straight to high school. So I just took the acceleration exam and then went straight to high school. So imagine like a grade four baby <laughs> come going to high school um, after two years of just staying at home and like recovering from some uh, unknown I- illness, I didn't know what I had, but I was just so weak all the time. So yeah, I got to school in high school and I was so different. I was a little afraid of people because of course for two years, I didn't really interact with anyone. So I got bullied a lot uh, during the first year in high school. And on top of that, I... So I was very naive. I didn't know um, how the world works. I had like many traumatic experiences. So aside from getting bullied, uh, I was al- also almost raped. I was going home and then there was the guy who's following me. And so lots of traumatic experience for a 14-year-old. <laughs> and it was so difficult because I felt that I was plucked from my stay-at-home world to like a jungle. And I didn't know how to be myself. I didn't know how to be uh, like a, an adolescent, like a woman coming of age. Uh, I felt like a kid. And I think that was sort of the first time I realized that it was kind of dangerous to be who I am and to be a woman in the world. Because I never felt that way prior to that. I was like, yeah, we we had a lot of disadvantages, but my mom is very capable and I was surrounded by power women but for first year high school I was like okay it's so dangerous to be me why is it this way um and yeah it was it was really a shocking experience that I still remember now and even if I'm over a lot of it there are still some trigger words my goodness I I think it never really leaves you like people who've been bullied or have or who have been through traumatic experiences they don't really forget like there will be trigger words. So scary. Can you tell us more about that experience of coming of age and almost getting raped? Like how exactly did that happen? I mean, not to make you relive a traumatic experience, yeah. but how did that happen? So I was um I was coming home from a practice or something. I don't remember why I was coming home, but I was coming home around 6 p.m. And I rode a jeepney to go home. And then there was this guy in the 
in the jeepney was looking at me. And I, I knew that he was looking, he was staring, but I didn't think much of it. And so I went down and then made my way home. And then suddenly I saw like a shadow beside me, like really fast, like going really fast beside me. And then he grabbed me by the waist. And I just started, like I didn't know how to find my voice. Like literally I couldn't scream. I was just like trying to get him off me. But also I was at the same time embarrassed because there were so many cars coming. Um, like Because it was on the side of the street. And then when I would manage to shout a little uh, and some cars would like slow down, he would shout and say that I'm his girlfriend and they should just leave it alone. And I remember I was 14 years old and getting groped and like with a very violent person and nobody really stopped and everybody just, you know, uh, made their way anyway. It was very scary. And then I don't know how for how long we struggled, but um, a guard house, like a guard from a guard house in one of the houses nearby just shouted and came down and chased him. Um, I didn't want to go straight home while he was chasing me because I didn't want him to, to know where I lived. But when he went the other way um, and the guard chased him, I went straight home. I was trembling. I was crying. I couldn't really explain what happened. I actually could remember what I was wearing. It was that traumatic because I could remember what I was wearing. And I was just, okay, it was this shirt with collar, with sleeves, and I, I was in pants. And I was 14. I'm like, what did should I have worn something else? I still find myself asking that question that maybe I should have done something else to prevent it from happening. Sadly, this experience of being uh, sexually assaulted or even sexually harassed while you're on the streets or while you're out living your life is it's more common and it's more of a reality than people realize and would like to acknowledge. Now, the fact that we're actually on a podcast and talking about it means at this moment, we're already in a privileged position. But from you, you see the reality on the street. You have seen how easy it is for these things to happen. And I'm sure you see it also because you're a social entrepreneur and you deal with people who have to deal with these challenges every day. So as a survivor, really, of what is essentially sexual assault, how do you move past that, especially experiencing it at such a young age? Yeah, so I think it took a year during um, high school. Like, I didn't even seek any counselors. I don't remember um, going through counseling for that incident. For one year, I was so scared. So for one year, I was so scared and I was bullied a lot. And it was just like everything happening all at once. So I didn't know how I survived that year, but I was able to cope somehow and I think I'm a very reflective person. Like ever since I was young, I'd always try to look at the connections. I really don't know where that came from. But every time something happens, I'd always connect it. Like, oh, this happened and this is what I learned. And maybe because this is what I learned, this is what happened. And then this is the result. So I always like have that kind of frame of mind. So I think what I did was to try to make sense of it in my own way. Like, okay, this is not unique. This has happened to so many people. It was sick to say that I got luckier because it was just sexual assault. I mean, 
that's so sick to say because it could have been worse, you know. But at the same time, it could have been, you know, it could have not happened at all. But I felt that at least it didn't get worse. And so I thought, okay, it's a very dangerous place, um, very dangerous world for women. So what could I do about it? So every time I try to do something, every time I get engaged in projects, it's all about thinking of thinking about the consequences. Like, how can this help someone how can this change somebody's life? Um, because I know that I couldn't change everything. But if if I just do nothing and just help myself, I don't think I don't think that's a way to live for me. Because that's maybe it's a coping mechanism. Um, maybe it's a way for me to make sense of what happened. But but yeah, I always try to look at what I could learn from it and how I could do something for someone else because of what happened to me. So I think that's the, like the domino effect that got me to rags to riches eventually. Um, because ever since high school, I'd be involved in like socially oriented organizations, um, like really just try to make it better for somebody else. And then, College was the same thing. Um, I'd be part of different um, organizations like Gawad Kalinga. So just the building blocks of my life for me would have to be connected to making somebody's life better. And when Rags to Riches was starting about 13 years ago, um, and we met the group of artisans in Payatas, mostly mothers, mostly women, who were weaving foot rugs out of scrap fabric and were only earning about 10 to 16 pesos a day. Um, when I saw that situation, I'm like, um, okay, that's not acceptable. Something has to be done. And so that's, that's the reason why I got engaged in rags to, rags to riches to begin with. It's because of that problem that we wanted to solve together. Okay, so at this point, we've gone through your childhood, your your youth, growing up, moving past all of this trauma and, and taking realizations and lessons that that you learned at that point in life and uh you've you've explained how you channeled them into really building something positive and taking these lessons and and placing them into something that that you believed and that you knew would affect other people but you know that's a lot of trauma to process those are many things to have to rise above those are a lot of glass ceilings to break basically Personally, while you were building Rags to Riches and, and your life, actually, what you have now, how did you process this all and make sense of it all in your head? Like, I've been through this. Uh, this is what I want to do with it. And this is what I want to achieve with it. Because it looks like point A to point B to point C. It's so easy to simplify it and, and reduce it to that right now. But I'm sure when you're in the process, it's difficult and it's messy and it's confusing and it's painful. So tell us about that. Oh yeah, it was. I mean, I mean, I didn't get things right immediately. There are so many things I got wrong. Um, like even in high school, even in university, there were things that I was mature about and there were things that I was so, like I needed a lot of growing. Um, in some areas, I think that's the that's the result of a traumatic childhood or a very, um, I guess, a very unconventional kind of family life. Um, is that you mature in some areas really quickly, but then 
there are so many things that you don't understand. So like I matured a lot in terms of social, like understanding social problems and how I could be part of the solution. But when it comes to relationships and friendships, that's super like, it took a long time before I really got to um, a good place when it comes to friendships and relationships. I had a lot of trust issues when it comes to that. But then, uh, and this is a hack that I would like to share to the listeners. I write a lot. I write to myself a lot. I write a lot to process. And when you do that, I think you will see patterns. Because when you write, you know, it's like a, a letter to your future self. That, hey, future self, this is where I am right now. Um, these are the things that I'm going through. And these are these are my thought processes. And maybe your future self will go back to that writing and say, okay, this is how I've changed. And so I've done a lot of writing. And that's how I processed a lot of the pain, a lot of the hardships. And so even my relationship issues, even my trust issues when it comes to friendships and relationships, I was able to use so that I could understand our artisans better. And that's because I wrote everything down. I'm like, how can I trust people? So I wrote that down. And then my my art to ourself, like the one who's starting Rags to Riches, went back to those writings and like, huh, okay, so... If I had a lot of trust issues because I felt that, you know, a lot of adults would promise a lot of things that didn't really happen, then maybe our artisans also have trust issues and would be, would find it very difficult to trust us because they've been promised so many things before as well, which turned out to be true. Um, it helped me with empathy a lot, but I think unprocessed trauma and unprocessed emotions are dangerous. So as much as possible, when you go through hardships, try to write it down and like, and if possible, seek for help so that you could process all of these and make it better and make it make you a better person. So that's how I did it with a lot of writing. Okay, I would just like to go back and ask also for more of your advice for young women who have maybe gone through the same experience as you of being put in a compromising situation, of being in danger of sexual assault or having experienced it also. This is very specific to that particular experience and it's specific to you also. Having been through that trauma for women and young girls who might have experienced it and are trying to process it also, what do you suggest they do specifically, whether it's to report it, ask for help, try to get over it, aside from writing and processing it in a healthy way that you've already outlined? First of all, I think do the hardest thing, which is to convince yourself that it's not your fault. I think that's what we all go through. Like when we go through assault, that we, when, we go, when we go through abuse, we always look back and say, what could I have done better? But that's really not on us. And when we accept that, that we, there wasn't anything we could have done to stop it because it was the perpetrator, perpetrator's fault, um, then we can forgive ourselves first because we blame ourselves a lot. I don't know why that is, but we do. Um, it's like we take too much responsibility even for the things that we are not responsible for. So in a way, it also eases the responsibility away from those who are really responsible. So first of all, do that. That will heal you and like tell you, okay, 
It's not your fault. Now it's time for the next steps. So definitely report it. Um, resist um, questions that make you at fault again. Um, I think we're now better. We know better enough to do that. That when you're asked what were you wearing, for sure answer it because maybe they want to catch it on CCTV or something. But um, if it's asked in a way that makes you at fault or that makes you feel that you're being blamed, resist. So I think we have been through enough as women. We're still going through a lot, but we now have a voice. Um, we have also come a long way. So resist and do the work. In dealing with your artisans at Rags to Riches, you, I'm sure that you come across stories that are not, that are similar to, to your own. How, what's it like having to manage a, a business, a social enterprise with women who may be exposed to experiences like that, to uh, trauma, to hardships and difficulties? As a leader, how do you deal with that? Those are very sensitive topics for our artisans and for, for many families in the Philippines because, you know, we are, we, we have a very different culture where, you know, if, um, if a woman is abused in her family, um, many people expect her to stay and be the glue of the family and just try to forgive all the time and to submit and to be good wives forever, um, even if they're hurt in the process. So it's very sensitive. So I don't really like um, give talks about all of those issues explicitly because I knew that that was going to alienate a lot of people and they may not yet be comfortable discussing it. It's very personal for a lot of women. So instead of going that direction, um, the first step that we did was economic empowerment um, with the hopes that economic empowerment can empower women to leave their husbands and like maybe take their children um, if they are in a very abusive relationship. Because usually a lot of them couldn't because they rely so much like financially um, on their husbands or partners. So we felt that that was a good first step so that if you don't yet have courage, you at least have the resources, like what it, it the means so that when push comes to shove, you could go and you could really try. And then we do a lot of educating. Um, again, nothing super explicit because again, it's a very sensitive topic for a lot of our artisans. But we try to do like, um, women's rights sessions here and there, especially pre-pandemic. Um, I could only imagine how much more difficult it is now that we're all quarantining together. Uh, so I'm still thinking of ways on how to do that. Um, things usually reach me anyway, uh, because the culture in Rags to Riches is very open and transparent. So when people have problems, they just tend to message me. Uh, so I, I find out when things like that happen. So, so far, I'm very happy that uh, recently, like for the past year during this quarantine season, hopefully that will pass soon, uh, our artisans are doing well. Um, they're taking care of their families and none are reporting um, very toxic households or violence. It's 
a different perspective that you've brought to what glass ceiling thus far because you know you say women empowerment let's let's talk about um really encouraging that and to a lot of people maybe to a lot of our audience to you and to you right now and to me and to other people who are working on this podcast it means a different thing compared to what you just described so it's it's about you know really uh doing what they want and embracing passions to a certain sector of society that's what women empowerment is but now you're talking about a reality that really we cannot ignore because like in the Philippines in the situation we're in now in the position we are in in society when we talk about women empowerment it's it's really like you know embracing your passions and and having the privilege to be able to pursue them no matter what other people will say but you you talk about situations like this and this is really the reality here in the country this is the reality on the streets that it's a cultural thing it's a it's a cultural thing these are cultural hurdles that we have to overcome the ceilings are there culturally the ceilings are there economically even these are these are very um how do i say it these are concerns that are really day-to-day concerns that prevent women from even reaching that point where they can say how do i live my best life or how do i fully become the person that i feel i want to be so these are concerns that you have to take care of before you even reach that point my question then is do you think that we have to redefine like empower empowering women women empowerment what does it really mean what does it really entail are we just giving it some sort of lip service here yeah i think i think we have talked about women empowerment a lot for the past century <laughs> and it has meant different things for different people um but i think in the end of it there's always an acid test um and it depends on where you are and where you're from but the questions are usually do you feel safe um do you feel like you could do anything and be anyone and when you ask that to more empowered more empowered women like more privileged women um we could answer yes but only to a certain extent because honestly even if i could say that i can pursue my passion i am more privileged absolutely i have more opportunities but the question of do i feel safe my answer is still no um i would still go out in the street or jog well I'm very lazy so I don't really jog but go out like in the street. Um I feel that that in itself is a little dangerous. Like how could you feel that it's dangerous to go out in your own village and walk around? But I do feel that way. So until um until women feel that way, women from all over the world from all walks of life, then we are not there yet. So no matter where you are or who you who you are like our artisans they feel unsafe to a very large degree but even if you ask me and I'd say you know I'm one of the like women leaders already I would still say that I feel unsafe so we still have a lot of work to do so I don't know if we need to redefine it but I think we just have to ask ourselves the right questions it's not about do you feel more empowered but rather do you feel safe yeah it's it's literally it's literally asking asking those questions that do you feel safe in this world do you do you think you can get by until tomorrow like these are say what you want they're baser concerns but you know i mean we tend to focus so much on 
are we living our best lives? Are we becoming the women that we want to be or that we think we deserve? That's what the framing of women empowerment is right at this moment. But knowing that then, I mean, all of these experiences that you've been through, the things that you have to deal with every day and building your business and dealing with your artisans and in your own personal experience, can you see the difference in experience here in the Philippines with a certain sector of society and like say with women abroad, because you've been recognized globally for what you do and, and you can, you can make that distinction in, in dealing with different cultures and, and maybe uh, a different part of society. Are there, are there any differences there? I mean, is it different here in the Philippines from it, from other countries? Yeah, for sure. Well, there are definitely different levels of, being marginalized in some way. So um, I'd say that a lot of women in the Philippines are already like on their way to becoming more empowered, to, to having more opportunities, for sure. Um, we have a long way to go to feel really safe in our own streets. And if you plop us anywhere in the world, I think we'll still say the same thing that, you know, um, statistics would say that we are m- most likely to get killed, or most likely to get raped. It's just the reality of our world. Um, in other countries, it's more of like, it's still marginalized, but very different. So an example, um, I went to a global conference and I'm one of the awardees in that global conference. And we were like separated into round tables. And so there were like maybe two women, like me and another woman in the table. And then most of them are men. And the men, like one of the guys started uh, like to initiate like just a round of introductions. And he would like, oh, how about you? How about you? And he completely skipped us, like as if we don't exist, as if we don't have a voice. So, and I couldn't make sense of that. I don't know why that makes sense to him that in a round table, (laughs) he would skip actual human beings who happen to be women um, and just talk to men. So that was very, like, I was so puzzled about that. And I didn't even know how to react in the beginning. Because how do you react to that, right? Um, of course, I dreamt about that a lot of how I should have reacted. But again, it's not my fault. It's their fault. It's his fault. And there was another conference where I was with um, Jack Ma. So I was talking alongside Jack Ma in a, like a global conference. And we were at the backstage. And so I was one of the speakers. But the wait staff kept on talking to me, asking me for what Jack Ma wanted to drink. And I'm like, I don't know, ask him. <laughs> I, so I, I think just because of who I am and how I look like, he immediately assigned a role to me without checking because it's just the, the perception. And there were so many times in conferences like that that people approach me like I'm the plus one of my husband. By the way, in that conference, my husband was my plus one. So, <laughs> and he's super okay with it. But other people are not. That's just their perception. So perception hurts because it puts you, it paints you to the background. It assigns you a, a different story. And people treat you differently until they find out who you are. But why should you have to prove that? Your humanity itself just, how you are as a woman should be enough to get respected, should be enough to spark curiosity um, about who you are. 
and not to be assigned as some caricature. It's amazing how we've gone from one end of the spectrum to another because we've discussed about just basically feeling safe on the streets and now we're going to the other end, which is being treated as, as an equal in a high-level conference, a high-level global conference. So you've seen all this and you've experienced all of this. So I think you can give us a really good picture of the work that still has to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think I, I could see parts of it. I think I, I still don't see like a lot of the parts of what needs to be done. But I, I guess fortunate enough and unfortunate enough to have experienced so many things in my lifetime um, to know that we still have a long way to go. And fortunately, I could be part of that solution, even just starting with being a mom to sons. I have two boys. And I know that women empowerment and really equality it's not on us alone. Oh my goodness. Because that's like the definition of non-equality, I guess. If it's just, like, it's your responsibility again to make yourself empowered, to make yourself equal. But it's everybody's responsibility. The men, has, they have responsibilities too. I mean, they have a huge responsibility on how to make that happen. And guess what? It's going to make the world better for everyone. So, I mean, in the beginning, they'd probably think that... Um, there are things that are unfair, but that's just sometimes equality can feel like something is being taken away from you if you're the privileged class. So it's it's part of the process. It's part of the growth, but it's going to be good for everyone. What would you tell your two boys? I mean, in teaching them about, you know, uh, the value of women, really, how to treat women, how to talk to women, how to view women. What would you tell them? Well, first, well, there's a lot to unpack there for sure. But I think from the very beginning, I want to peel away everything that culturally we've been taught as weak or bad, and they're mostly feminine. So boys are encouraged to not play with toys that are considered quote-unquote for girls. Why? Because that's a bad thing. While girls, it's okay for girls to play with boy toys, like quote-unquote boy toys, um, because, you know, it's uh, they could do anything, right? But the boys, um, anything feminine or female or princessy are usually demonized at such an early age. So what? how would you expect um, boys to grow up to men who respect feminine traits who respect women if at such an early age you're telling them that they shouldn't like wonder woman that they shouldn't like princesses that they shouldn't dress like girls as if those are bad things so i think there are so many things that we have to do but we could start with making just letting kids be children like how they really are when they came into the world um they came into this world with so much curiosity um just wanting to be friends with everyone just wanting to explore their worlds but if we already assign um things that we think they shouldn't do then they will assign like i think negative traits to the things that we stop them from doing 
So of course, when they grow up, they will feel that way as well towards the feminine, um, towards women. So I feel that, you know, from the start, because my boys are still very young, so four years old and one year old, um, I allow them to just play with anything they want. I don't think there is such a thing as toys for girls or toys for boys or colors for girls or colors for boys. Um, we are the ones who assign that. Our culture is the one who assigned that. And maybe toy makers are the ones who assign that. But it's not natural. You know, it's not something that they they were born that they already know, okay, blue is for boys. No. So... So yeah, it starts with that. It starts with small things. But because it's so culturally ingrained in us, it's a struggle. Because for me, for example, um, our parents or people around us, they're already like part of that generation and that believe so much in these gender assignments or sex assignments of toys and colors and everything. So it's a very difficult culture to break. Um, even if it seems like a simple thing to do, it's really not simple. Anything cultural, anything systemic is not easy to change or to shift. Which I think just demonstrates how much work is ahead of us because most of these hurdles, most of these ceilings that we have to shatter are all cultural. They're all systemic. So I think we've come so far. We've come very far already compared to like years ago, centuries ago, but there's still so much work in front of us. Now you've you've mentioned that that you grew up with a single mother and she was also very instrumental in having a non-conventional upbringing. But you've told me before that you also grew up around strong women. So with that part of your childhood, with that part of your upbringing, what are the lessons that you've learned from your own strong single mother and those strong women around you growing up that you hope to personify in your own life? So there are many things that I have learned to do and I have learned not to do as well. Um, because say what you will, but, you know, we have a process, all of us, like as women. Um, and a lot of us are still part of that toxic culture. We still have that internalized misogyny still. Um, but we could take the good and then just progress from there. So for my mom, for example, uh, what I really like about how she raised me and my brother is that she never compared us. Like, it's amazing how, because I, I hear that a lot, like parents like just making their kids compete with one another or just comparing, even if they don't know that they're comparing. My mom never did that. She's always supportive of me and supportive of my brother. Um, my brother wasn't the special one because he's the boy. Uh, and my mom is Chinese. And usually in um, her culture, like in the culture that she grew up in, sons are considered really precious. And, you know, you should, um, they should be the first, they should be the heirs. But my mom didn't really get that memo, <laughs> thankfully. She was just like, yeah, both my kids are great. They're amazing. Um, they could do what they want to do. So I... I like, I really like that because as a result, me and my brother were so close and we don't feel like we're competing with each other and we just support each other. So he's like my best friend. I Every time something good happens, I just message him because right now he's in Davao. So that's where he is living with his wife. So um, it, it nurtures people into better people. And my brother is super, like, 
I could say he's a feminist. He really respects women, treats women well. He knows that um, women are his equals. And you could sense it. And he's not afraid to show emotions. Um, he cries a lot for like really cheesy commercials, which I love. And I find that it's great that men can show emotions and that it's accepted as a good thing because it is. I mean, we're all human beings. So You've actually illustrated how instrumental the role of men is in you know, furthering the cause and the experience of women. You've mentioned your husband, who's very supportive. Now you're talking about your brother. And, and you've talked about how you need to raise your sons in a certain way to make this world a better place. And it, it's something, I think, that doesn't get a lot of attention. The role that men have to play in empowering women, for lack of a better term. No, absolutely. I mean, if again, if we just are left to our own devices and that we should empower ourselves and we should just do things ourselves and nothing is really going to change because half the world is women, half the world. You know, there are many um, men in this world and a lot of them are the ones who are in leadership positions and the ones speaking on our behalf and the ones who are making the systems and just supporting the culture of either misogyny or equality. So it's just a reality. It's we can't do this these things ourselves. So this is also why I love um, seeing like celebrities or uh, leaders that who are men who show that um, they don't just respect women or treat women as equals, but they themselves are very much in touch with their emotions, and they themselves um, have feminine traits that they are proud of that because we all have all of these traits there's no such thing as you know you're just feminine that's it but we're all very complex human beings we have we have everything so like for example <laughs> one of my um quarantine uh pleasures i wouldn't say it's guilty pleasures i'm really not guilty about it at all is i love bts like I'm super like loving BTS. But what I realize, what I love about BTS is really that they're showing the world like how men could be. Like it doesn't have to be macho macho and like super um, boy bandy, you know, that they could be friends with each other, that they could show affection and they could show emotions, that they could cry I can't believe I even have to say all of these things because these things should be normal in the future. So I, I'm hoping that, you know, uh, having icons like that in the world kind of normalizes what it means to be a man because when we normalize that, we also support women and we don't say that these traits are weak, that these traits are, we shouldn't have them um, because women have them as if it's some sort of disease. So I feel that, you know, we need more icons like that so that we could really push our agenda forward and push the world to be a better place. Okay, so we tackle toxic masculinity and BTS in one go. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Reese, I feel like this conversation could go on forever. There's so much meat here. There are so many important topics that we have only touched on. I feel like... I feel like we've barely skimmed the surface, really. But 
Thank you so much for coming on What Glass Healing and, and, and opening yourself up, sharing your experiences and your insights and, and all of these very, very important lessons really that have to be learned by so many people the world over. And it's, it's so invaluable, really, the things that we've, that we've discussed so far in this conversation. Thank you for that. Thank you for sharing in this. Thanks so much as well for having me, Leah. I mean, I am so excited to also listen to all of your other guests. Because, you know, I think we just need more positive female voices in this space. A lot of people who are super confident about their um, their words and what they have to say are probably contributing to the toxicity. So I'm happy that those who are contributing to the positivity are finding their voice and also being more confident to share it. Thanks again, Reese. Thanks so much for lending your voice here.